Hey there, badass. Welcome to the Leading Rebels podcast, your bi-weekly dose of inspiring advice dished up by kick-ass female leaders. I'm your host, Kat Frangel, and this is episode 8, an interview with peace and human rights activist Magda Zenon. Magda shares how to stand up for what you believe in and be an authentic leader that rallies people around them. anti-apartheid activist in South Africa, while still school is certainly not the easy road, but it's what set Magda Zenon on her path. As she says herself, she wasn't the flavor of the month, but choosing to stand up for what she believes in instead of what's popular taught her early on the importance of authenticity as a leader. Magda Zenon has been a peace and human rights activist ever since she can remember, and brings with her perspective form within the context of living in three countries, South Africa, Greece, and now Cyprus. Since moving to Cyprus, she has continued to focus on gender violence and women's participation, and the integration of the gender perspective in the peace process and contributing to culture of peace. She is a founding and active member of Hands Across the Divide, the Cyprus Women's Lobby, and of the Gender Advisory Team. Magda is a great believer in the power of storytelling, and to this end has hosted a radio program called Kaleidoscope, a forum for women's voices that perhaps would not have access to the traditional media. Before we get started, important reminder to head on over to leadingrebels.com slash 8 after the episode. I jotted down all key takeaways for you so you don't need to scribble along as you listen. Plus, there's even a leadership checklist you don't want to miss out on. Now, let's dive in. Hi, Magda. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Maybe you want to give the listeners a little introduction about yourself just so so they get acquainted with you. Hi, Katerina. Uh, Nice to be on the other side. I'm usually the one asking the questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm Magda Zenon. I'm... If there was one label I would give to myself, it's an activist. Been an activist all my life. I, I am not an activist. It's true. I, it's what I breathe. It's not what I do. And human rights and women's rights is usually my, is what I promote or push for or lobby for. Perfect. I know we're definitely going to be diving into a little bit later about all the work you've done with different organizations and your own radio show. So as you said, you've also been on the other side of this conversation. But maybe going back to the beginning, what was kind of your first experience of um, seeing leadership maybe or being a leader yourself for the first time? You usually realize you're a leader in retrospect, okay? It's usually not at the time. High school is probably when I first saw myself, when I first realized I was leader looking in retrospect because South Africa was an English school system. So there were prefects and head prefects, governments in fact. And the head prefect had been selected by the, um, the teachers and the deputy head was selected by the students. And I made deputy head. I was an average to good student, but I was a popular student. Okay. So and I realized that at the time that inadvertently I was a leader. People would come to me and ask me for advice or people would if I did something, they would follow me because the reason I realized I was a leader is because whatever I do, I do from the heart. If I'm doing it, I believe in it. I don't do things because it's popular. I don't do things because it's the right thing to do. In terms of uh, social constructs, I do things because it's the right thing for me to do. And it comes from me. So I think that was the first time I realized I was a leader. And in fact, Despite the fact that I wasn't the first choice for the teachers, the teachers also supported me. Okay, so that's the first time I realized 
maybe I am a leader. That's perfect. I think, as you said, people recognize authenticity. And yeah. if you're showing that you're really doing this because you stand behind it, people are much more likely to to rally around you. Or at least, as you said, in the case of the teachers, even if they maybe disagree on your stance, they can respect the fact that you're standing up for something that you truly believe in. Absolutely. Authenticity is a key quality. And let's also put this into context. South Africa is apartheid South Africa I grew up in. Okay, I was human rights, justice, equal opportunity, which wasn't really the cool thing to be when you were white and privileged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the fact that I was uh, fighting for this or believed in this or stood behind what I was saying also made it harder for me, but also made my authenticity come through more clearly. Because it wasn't the flavor of the month, okay? It wasn't, it was quite risky to be an anti-apartheid activist because there was, you were followed by police, mail was open, you had an envelope, not an envelope, a file at the police station. So there was patrolling in the streets that at the time I thought was ha ha ha. (laughs) But when I think back on it, I think, my God, how did my parents what nightmares I might have give, must have given my parents. So that's super interesting. How did you, I guess, start to become an activist already at that young age, and especially in an environment that wasn't super supportive of the activism that you were doing? What kind of prompted you to decide, hey, this is something that I want to stand up for, even if it's not easy? I don't think there's one moment that there isn't one moment that I decided to do it. I just did it. I was very fortunate to be brought up in a family of the diaspora, but I had parents that wanted to give me wings to fly. I was also the third child, so there's a lot more liberty with being the third child. (laughs) But I was also, it wasn't something I was so passionate about. It came out, I remember at the age of 12, actually worrying about the underdog and not being happy with what I saw around me. And white South, um, apartheid South Africa, it was, we had a, a governess at home. If my mother needed to go somewhere with her, she couldn't sit next to her. She said, had to sit on the back seat. If you went somewhere, there's a black toilet and a white toilet. Mm. You couldn't sit in the same restaurant. I fortunately grew up in a family or a home that whether I spoke to my mom, my sibling, or my the Jane, as she was there, because we had her all our lives, the respect was the same. It's always please and thank you. It was always if I could do it, I did it. I only asked her to help me if I couldn't do it or if I was ill. So I was fortunate to be brought up in a family where respect, mutual respect was part of the course. So I don't know when I, I've always been an activist. I can't remember a time I wasn't, it didn't upset me when someone had less than me or less opportunity than me. I mean, absolutely. I think that's, if anybody that does not believe that I always find it highly problematic. But as but as I still super admire, I think that's the point. A lot of people feel that way, but don't act in it, or at least don't live it because of fear or because of other barriers. So I think having the courage, and as I said, maybe the environment at home that supported that to actually act on it is still super amazing. How did that transition as soon as you left school? Well, I went to the... Most liberal university in Johannesburg, was, which was the Witwatersrand University, it was partly state-funded, which gave us the liberty to be liberal. 
I studied political science, international relations, and international law, which is where my passion lies. I like the global community. I was fairly active on campus. I was blessed to have really two really great lecturers, the one in international relations and the one in international law. My international law lecturer was the legal representative for the UN representation of South Africa to the UN. Okay. I found him actually a few years ago online and I sent him an email to thank him for inspiring me because he did. I liked the fact that there was a presence out there, that there was a global community, that there was in part an accountability. So I never lost. My friends always tease me that while they were having fun and dating and all this bitchiness that goes around with dating and socializing, mm. I was trying to save the world. Mm. I always used to go to what you call it, um, events. If there were speakers or, uh, if there were uh, get togethers. So I was always active. I always wanted to, I've always been an active member of the, the community, whether the small community of my family or the great community of beyond. So it just carried on. It was just, I mean, when I, when, when I went to uni, we're talking about, I'm almost 60, you're talking about 40 years ago. International relations was not a big subject. It was a very small department then. Now it's a major, now it's a subject that most people do because now it's, we talk about a global community. So my life, I just carried on. It was automatic. And what I studied at uni when I did my master's is I did a thesis on the Palestinians. So my human rights carried on into that, which again didn't make me popular because I lived in a country that was pro-Israel. So I would get information from then the Palestinian information office, it was called, in Beirut. They would send me leaflets or information. The envelope would arrive open. So it was was quite a challenge. I'm quite a brave girl when I look back and I think I just did this automatically. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did you have a community around you that, I mean, as I said, like maybe the bigger context was not supportive of, of your stances, but did you have a community around you that when you said in school, it was your parents and your family, but in university, did you build up those groups that were supportive and created a community for yourself? They've always been community. The, the activist or the liberal community always sticks together. You, ought, you inadvertently join them when things happen. So I don't specifically remember tight community, but there was the university community, and I had a few friends. I, when I was uni, my first serious relationship was with a Greek young man who was deputy chairperson of the right of the left wing party of the youth. So that was also community. But I inadvertently, I mean, I, I just drifted in these directions because I was far more interested in saving the world than dating and relationships. I would say there was a community, but not a, I can't think of them now. I just remember feeling safe and carrying on, but I'm also a loner in the sense that I don't mind it. I've never had the need for, um, for someone to tell me you're right. I know what's in my heart. There was, um, it's actually, it's very, it's absolutely tell me, I don't know, I've recently been reading Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown, which I don't know if you know, but she says it's exactly about, it's actually a Mahjong quote about you're never alone because you always have yourself, but you have the wilderness within you that you know is the right one for you. And I think because you have that strength, 
in your beliefs, as you've said, you are alone, but not at the same time. It's always kind of this dichotomy, which can be interesting, um, but very strong. It's interesting. It can be lonely. It can be quite lonely, but I know that this means that everywhere I go, I automatically gravitate to people, to a tribe, <laughs> to people that with similar beliefs where I'm, I feel can feel safe or comfortable or have a good conversation. Yeah, I was actually going to, my part of the question for if you had already created this community in university was because now you've started a lot of women's organizations and um, and lobbies and so on. So I was wondering when I would say the, the switch took place from being a part of these communities to saying, I want to create these communities. Well, I've also had the advantage, disadvantage of moving. I left South Africa, I moved to Greece, and then I came to Cyprus. When you're born and brought up in a country, you have a community. But when you move to a new country, you've got to create the community, so you inadvertently create a community that you're happy in or that you have things in common with. When I came to Cyprus in 2000, a week after I landed, that's why it was serendipity worked in my favor when I moved to Cyprus because within a week I had a a car, a place to stay, a school for my son, and a job. And the job was a new newspaper that was opening, and I got the, I got the job. I mean, I landed on Saturday and Thursday. I had a job. So going to newspaper, you automatically, firstly, you get located. You know where you are. You've got to know your where your bearings. You've got to get your bearings very quickly. You get networked. And in a newspaper, you, they tend to put you in boxes in the sense that someone does the celebrity stuff, someone does the political, someone does the finance. And I automatically went to human rights. And I think a week, about two or three months after the newspaper opened, there was a conference on the British Council. I had a conference on the women in divided communities. How can they help? And it was Bosnia-Herzegovina. Israel, Palestine, um, Ireland, us. I think those were the four. And out of that, there was such a sense of sisterhood or community, of community, hands across the divide developed. Okay. People wanted to talk. Island-wide, um, women came together. And for the listeners that don't know, Cyprus is divided. And divided in a true sense because there's barbed wire. Divided in a true sense because until 2003, you had to go through a checkpoint, you had to show a passport, and you had to get a visa stamped. So bringing people from both the communities together needed an effort. It needed you to step out of your comfort zone. There were two or three spaces that you could meet, but if you needed to go to the north, which is the unrecognized Turkish-speaking part of the island, you needed, before 2003, you needed the permission. You everywhere you went, someone came with you from their administration. In this, uh, the other way wasn't that difficult because we did not recognize the division as a border. There's a division, but it's not a border. After 2003, things were easier, but we needed to come together. And women do this better than men, I think. <laughs> women need to talk. <laughs> they like to hear stories. They have a lot more things. They, women are better at expressing their emotions, I think. Social constructs say it's easier for me to cry than a man. 
so that's where hands across the divide. We suddenly realized that we needed to come together. We wanted to come together. We wanted to learn about each other. And Hands Across the Divide was formed in 2002, the first woman, island-wide women's organization that had one management, because usually management was one in the north, one in the south, for ease of, of process. We were the first one that had one management. With NAP Turkish Cypriot Greek Cypriot, we had a woman. It would rotate, we had a management, and it worked. So, and that, and the biggest learning of that, when you live in a divided community, is you realize that it's not ethnicity that divides you, it's not sex that divides you, it's actually the personality of the individual that divides you. Hmm. And what brings you together is exactly the same. So what did you learn with, with leading this, or starting first off, and then leading this at times still, of course, challenging organization? What was, did you feel your role and what was the most effective things you could do to facilitate this exchange? Well, I took on the brave role of being the, we created an e-group. I was very brave and I decided to moderate the group. <laughs> <laughs> so what you, learn, what you learn is trigger words, okay? You learn that people are different because they're different and it's got nothing to do with the language they're speaking. Because when you're writing on a, what you call it, when you're writing on an e-group, the first thing, another thing that people might not know about Cyprus is that each community speaks different language. So usually the community, the language of communication is English, which for most people is not their first language. So you've got to learn that you've got to be simple when you're expressing yourself. I'm often told to slow down because I forget that I'm, that people are not, I just start talking. <laughs> <laughs> so you learn that word, you've got to be careful, you've got to learn that words sometimes mean different things to different people. You learn that it's okay to be angry, but you've got to step away and actually realize why you're angry and then deal with that. It's not good just to lash out. I certainly learned, I think we all learned on the e-group that when you, you do get that because these were two communities that didn't know each other very well and women that didn't know each other very well. Because when I first came to Cyprus, I'd never met a Turkish Cypriot lady, woman, person. Hmm. The first time I met a Turkish Cypriot. So you, there are a lot of things you're learning, and you've got to learn that you, in order to avoid misunderstanding or being insulting or being provocative or being whatever, you've got to be simple. You've got to use the simplest words you can. You've, there's certain words you've got to avoid so that you don't trigger people off. So I think the thing that I learned is I learned that diversity is definitely okay. I think I learned to step away a little bit from my anger or uh, uh, not my anger. If something upset me to take a step back, take a deep breath and re realize why I was, what had upset me. I also realized that people are really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're very complex creatures, especially on the internet. <laughs> especially on the internet. They're very complex creatures. They've, all of us have got a lot of issues. We've also, the internet was a very good tool for us to get to know each other because we actually got to know each other before we got to know each other. Because you'd get to know each other over the internet, over emails written. So we got together online first. There were a lot of conversations online because meeting was not easy. Me, me, the, 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 the police at the checkpoints, especially for the Turkish Cypriot ladies, 
made it very difficult. So the e-group was a way of us creating a community despite the fact that the uh, authorities did not want us to create a community. Did you notice any differences when in the way you maybe communicate with each other offline and then when you were in person and, you know, what the difference there? The difference is when when you meet someone, you can be a lot more, a lot more expressive. You don't need to be that careful when you, with someone really, because you can see their eyes, you can see the body language. Online, you've got to be a lot more careful, especially since for most of us, it wasn't, we weren't communicating in the first, la- in the first language. But we learned a lot about each other. We really, um, it cemented, it broke some friendships, it cemented another friendships. I definitely, it was so much more clearer for me that, because I also grew up inadvertently in a rhetoric that Turks are bad and Greeks are good. And I, this made me realize, no, people are good and bad. It's got nothing to do with ethnicity. Things that bring together people are things that they have in common, not the ethnicity. Not that ethnicities have been important to me, but it was one more, um, what do you call it? One more example that convinced me that this, this is actually in a lot of ways irrelevant to whether people are good or bad. Absolutely. And I think it's one of those hallmarks that as soon as you get to know somebody on a personal level, it's also a lot harder to keep preconceptions that you have about generalizations, be it about ethnicity or, or profession or um, anything at all. As soon as you meet somebody on a personal level, it's very hard to stay and believe those things. Yes, it is. It's, it's, not, it's not easy, but if you actually, if you keep the vision of the peace that you're trying to create, you make the, the stronger effort. I think the one thing that made me a leader in all of this is that I actually write quite simply. I don't write necessarily well, but I'm simple. You've got to be clear. When you're writing, you've got to be very simple, clear. I was wondering how you then uh, moved on to, from, if you said, writing and then deciding that starting Kaleidoscope, Kaleidoscope, <laughs> and going into the medium of speaking. All the, um, because I was involved in HAD, because HAD's Across the Divide then almost morphed into the gender advisory team. Because HAD's Across the Divide is quite grassroots. We did a lot of activities at the checkpoints in the street, which wasn't very common in Cyprus then. We then went on to the gender advisory team, which was coming together and putting real recommendations to the leaders. Kaleidoscope came about because um, HAD's Across the Divide was on the board of a community media center that had been created, set up in the buffer zone, specifically to bring together or to make a space for both communities to meet. A woman, and this was doing training, they would video uh, events that took place all over the island. They would teach about social media. So it had to do with media, but the community media um, strand of media. I was on the board and a woman came from India to speak about Community radio. She has a community radio station in Delhi, Achana Kapoor. And in, I went to the meeting and I was actually enthralled because suddenly I realized that community media is actually an exceptional tool, especially for women activists, because most of the women in the world 
are suppressed. The Middle East, Asia. So when you go to community media, you have a voice, you don't have a face, which is a strength in most cases because a lot of the time women don't want to have a face because that makes them targets, especially in non-European countries. Okay. But even in European countries, radio gives you a strength of being able to speak privately yet publicly. So I decided to try. They came to me and they said to me, no, but we're starting this radio station. You do women's rights. Why don't you do a show? And I thought, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> I don't like it or it doesn't work. Well, I've been on the air for four and a half years, one hour a week. I think I've missed about six or seven shows. It's That's fun. I'm sure you agree with me. Yes, and then it's, and I also it's both fun and still very commendable that being to keep such a schedule also shows commitment because I think even the funnest things, if we're not committed and we don't see the reason behind them, um, have a tendency to fade out. So that definitely has shown a very lasting impact there. And what I try to do, because we're a small community, I didn't want to recycle the same voices. Okay, and my passion in going through Hands Across the Divide, the gender advisory team, and then being part of the Cyprus Women's Lobby, which is Cyprus's representation at the European Women's Lobby level, um, peace building is what drives me. The fact that, firstly, we have a peace process in Cyprus that has no woman at the table, And no gender bends, okay. And the fact that women are such a big part of the community, they do such awesome things, and they're invisible. They don't, it's not considered as important, or as the president's important. What about the people that support him, or support what he's doing? And that's when I, I thought, you know what, we, we're hearing the same voices, and I started asking for interviews from big names, okay? I put a wish list out there. I interviewed Eve Ensler, okay, because we do a lot on gender violence here. We're part of the One Billion Rising um, movement. Cyprus Women's Lobby has had an event as, I think, One Billion Rising is six years old. I think we've had an event every six years as well. I mean, Eve Ensler, she's massive. She Absolutely. said, yes, I, um, I've interviewed a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Jody Williams. So what I've tried to do is we, we, we're stuck. The conversation here is stuck. And I thought maybe if I bring voices from somewhere else or different voices, it might help. It might change. It might shift someone. It might convince someone that what they were saying actually is a lot righter than what they thought it was. So I've tried the other way, and I've got a lot of good responses back. A lot of people have said to me, you know what, why hasn't the local mainstream media thought of this before? Why do we keep on seeing the same people all the time? So that's also turned me into the le a leader in the sense that now, because I've interviewed who I've interviewed, I now have the label of Magda from the media. And now when I speak to people on the radio, We often have people in common. So I'll speak to, I've got, I'll speak to, when I spoke to, I'm with um, 
Jodie Williams, we had three people in common. Hmm. So it's given me the the network. But I do I do have to say I do know my stuff to a point. I mean I'm really, really, really passionate about women and peace building. I mean and I can completely corroborate that the fact that we're talking is one of those facts of getting out there and I think women are especially even are very strong in building connections because you know mm. we're talking now because uh, of a mutual friend Natalie who was here in Berlin and I met and then the connections that still we don't see for example um, my mother does a violence against women project in Peru she's been doing it for about six years and she's been in gender all her life so I also very much grew up with uh, gender rights. And then two of the people that uh, Natalia actually introduced me to was you and, and somebody else. And both of them had this violence against women and gender activist background, which is it's kind of ironic, the coincidence of how you have these connections to people that you never met and it wasn't even intentional, but they are there. And, mm, exactly. Yeah. But maybe I need to interview your mom. Absolutely. She's um I'm very excited. Next week she's getting an honorary doctorate from the university in Peru because of the work she's been doing with them studying the effects of violence against women on corporations actually. So Well maybe you need to send me her stuff. But I agree with you. I think I think that's the strength of women and it's a strength we haven't used properly. It's the strength of community and community at every level. At every level. It's not just it's like you saying we a community. We actually know a whole selection of people in common. So it's creating communities at different levels. So you always connect to someone. You'll meet, go some. I was just in Rome, because now, I was just in Rome now. The Italy is a non-permanent member of the Security Council, and they've decided they've launched a woman, Mediterranean Woman Mediators Network. Okay. I mean, this was Rome. Yeah. But I preferred... Rather than wandering around, okay, I've been to Rome before, but instead of wandering around, I've met with two peace activists that I've known for ages, but we don't meet often because they live abroad. It was so much nicer to sit at a cateria and have a glass of wine and reconnect. Absolutely. So we do, we do connect at a, we always connect, we always have a community around us, and that's why they always, there's that, saying about if you educate a man you educate a person if you educate a woman you educate a community because women spread the word in some way they're going to whether it's the kids uh, siblings other women it's very rarely just for themselves i can absolutely corroborate that i mean yesterday was at a meetup and Somebody mentioned that they were working on something, and then two minutes later, another person that they never met before was like, oh, actually, I think I know somebody that could really help you with that. Um, so let's make sure that I give you that information. And this, let's say, like, selfishness of uh, giving on knowledge and resources, not because they benefit us, but because we generally want each other to have the best available, is something I really wish for us to keep and strengthen. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd say that the biggest, one of the biggest um, the things that makes people leaders, and I like the general use of the word leader, okay, is actually the, the authenticity that standing behind your word. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do. It doesn't necessarily benefit you because a lot of the time you get marginalized 
or you get inadvertent bullying. So the actually passionately believing in what you think is the right thing, because it's the right thing, to me is what separates the leaders from the non-leaders. Yes, I think we're coming for a circle to what you already established in, in school about authenticity and, and that that has been built up and continue to be proven right. Is there any other parts that you say if somebody's thinking, okay, I am in a leadership role, be that socially or in a company or in whatever setting, what are these, what do you think is good areas for them to focus on? So one is definitely authentically standing behind your word and doing what you think is right. Is there anything else that you think people should have a focus on? I think you do need knowledge, okay. It's good to read up a bit. It's good to be able. I think the one thing that I wish I did more or I think might have helped me a little bit more is if I studied more. I stopped at a master's, but I didn't do gender. My studying was international law. I think getting a bit of information, whether it's uh, official at university or reading a lot more, I think that's very, very important. You need to be able, besides your passion, you need to be able to corroborate what you're saying. You do need examples. And you need to network. That's another quality that is non-negotiable. Not non-negotiable, it makes you stronger. So I would say authenticity, knowledge, and fine-tuning your networking skills. That's the perfect trifecta. Is there maybe, speaking of knowledge, is there maybe something that you found either inspirational or helpful that you've read or seen or something that you'd recommend to other women, hey, this is something you should pick up? Not something that I would point out because I find that different things inspire different people. I mean, I, did find, I found them because I'm quite a macabre person and I'll sit and watch something quite distressing, even though now it's going to distress me, but it also fires me up more. So I, I don't think I can actually safely say this is what you should read. How have you found the, the things that, I mean, maybe instead of a specific content, how have you found the right content for you? So maybe are you somebody who loves going to the library? Is it something that you say the Internet has certain, you know, hidden treasures? I mean, everybody has different ways of accessing the knowledge that most helps them. Well, I have to tell you that when I was a little girl until the age of about 12, my dad had a restaurant next to the city library. <laughs> so I did spend every day in the city library. I'm, as a young, until a young adult, I was an avid reader. I think my attention span is gone. I also, I also surf a lot on the internet. If there's something that interests me, I surf on the internet. If there are people that interest me, if I, if I say, I hear someone speaking, and they inspire me at any level, I might go in and read up on them. I'm a little bit more haphazard, and that's maybe it's something that's been to my disadvantage. It's worked for me, but I do feel I could have had more knowledge, more um, structure in the knowledge I was dealing with. But I, you've got to find your passion. I found my passion quite early, but maybe life circumstances didn't help me to study further. I've always I've always made friends with people that are cleverer than me. That's always a good tip. <laughs> I, I really like I, I like to have friends around me that challenge me in a good way. 
so I think that's the, I, that's, I've always been an avid reader and I've always, the other quality is a natural curiosity. So I don't know everything and I ask questions. I think there was a, some sort of quote about the fact that if you stop learning, that's when you stop growing. So I think a lot of people have this mentality that you only learn while you're in school and then, you know, that's when you learn and then afterwards you don't. And I think it's so that we're unfortunate that we don't promote this continuous learning about the fact that that you you do not stop developing at 23 or whenever you finish studying but there's so much still for you to grow and learn it's just a very different context than maybe formal academic study well i know I, people always ask me how how much do i prepare for every person i interview and i always say i'm always half prepared because i actually want to be able to ask questions i want to be surprised and I actually, it would be very arrogant on my behalf to say I'm fully prepared for everything. But I do, I do, I'm partially prepared. I've got a background. There are parts of the interview that I'd like to learn about, but I want to learn something new in every interview and I've never been surprised. I mean, I've never, I've never not learned one thing in an interview. I learn at least one new thing in an interview. So I think this natural, this curiosity of wanting to learn more, of listening to what's being said around you. So the, uh, the opposite of arrogance is a very good quality. You've got to be confident enough to ask the questions, but also confident enough to know you don't know all the answers. Absolutely. I, I think when we were exchanging was the fact that storytelling, I feel, is a very a strength of women. And the fact that you storytell is some freedom to wander in different places. And, and as you, you know, recalled old, older stories that maybe are not part of the official story or official bio but are just as relevant and just as interesting. And, um, yeah. Actually, there was one thing I wanted to ask, bringing us back to that. I have a very big interest in international context, and you do too, clearly. And having been in South Africa, in Greece, and now in Cyprus, I think you touched upon earlier how it makes you see that we're not all that different, or that at least this, you know, nationalities and things like that don't divide us. Is there anything else that you observed in your time in these different settings about that were similar or maybe different, especially when it comes to women's leadership or just acti- you know, activism? Well, I think the one thing that's common with women, and this is common with women everywhere, is that we always like a good story. I always tease the Greek woman here, the Greek, the, even the Turkish woman that, do you know the, the telling of the coffee cup? The fortune telling with a coffee cup. Oh, I actually don't know that one. It's the uh, this uh, uh, thick coffee that when you turn it over, it makes shapes in the coffee, in the cup, and you can be, you see shapes and you tell stories. And I always say, this has to have been developed by a woman. It was an opportunity for a woman to come together and by saying, you know what, there seems to be a conflict in your family. Gave woman the opportunity to tell a story that they otherwise might not have had the opportunity. So I think the one thing that is common throughout is women always find a way to tell stories. Women always want to talk in a good way. So I think that's the thing that's common to all of us. I think the thing that the three countries have taught to me is that diversity is so much more fun. (laughs) Homogeneity is boring. Mm. So it's nice to have um, a Cyprus is homogeneous, despite the fact that we do have Turkish Cypriots, Greek Cypriots, and they a lot more come uh, similar in what they 
think they are. And despite the fact that we have Russians and Filipinos and Romanians and Chinese, the predominant culture is Cypriot. I miss the diversity of Africa. The fact that it was a big community and at Friday night you had, if you wanted, you could go to Shabbat at a Jewish household or the Catholics would have sardines on a Friday night. Or you would, you would have an Indian friend and they would have a Hindu wedding. That eating Thai or Japanese or in, or Italian was part of the course. I don't know. I think I do miss diversity. I think there's so much more richness in a mix up of cultures and I don't understand the fear of if we diverse, why is my identity threatened? I, that I don't understand. Am I making sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, it's, um, maybe as a little background, which is interesting. I'm a third culture kid, which means both my parents are from different cultures and I grew up in another culture than either of those. So, um, technically speaking, I don't have a nationality or a culture, which makes me very, it's difficult for me to understand this um, attachment to having the same thing and to staying the way and having things stay the old way is in quotation marks because oh. we're also, I mean, even people think they're not mixed. I think there was a beautiful video where they did genetic analysis of people who had um, stereotypical or even racist views about other ethnicities. And then they did DNA testing and they showed them, hey, you actually have this in your blood. You just got raised in a way that made you believe you were one thing, but that doesn't mean that, A, you're a lot of different things. And this clearly shows you that these preconceived notions you have about what blood has to do with anything is um, not right. Hmm. No, it's true. I mean, I when people ask me what nationality I am, I usually say, have you got a lot of time? Because I don't know what nationality I am. I've got separate parents. I was born in Africa. I lived in Greece for 17 years. I now live in Cyprus. So when people say to me, what nationality are you? Um, I love my Greekness, okay, but I love the, the Africanness in me as well. So I, uh, ethnicity is a travel document to me. I need to have a passport if I want to travel, but it, it doesn't define my, it's not high on my list of my identity. That's very true. And I think it, it helps with the storytelling aspect. I think as soon as you have a complicated story yourself, it's also easy to be interested and portray other people's stories like you do in, in Kaleidoscope, um, as well. When I used to love, we, because my parents had a restaurant, we, the housemaid used to, we used to spend a lot of time with her. She was my second mom and she used to sing these beautiful, uh, lullabies to me that I now sing to my Greek-speaking son, and I and he loves them. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, they used to, I used to want to, because I was a nosy little child, she would talk to her friends, and I, I, had to, I learned some of, uh, some Zulu, some Sudo, because I wanted to know what she was saying. I missed that, that there's a, there it was encouraged, it was part of the community. Here in Cyprus, even in Greece, that is also quite multicultural, because there's a lot of migrants and tourism and stuff like that. It, it's, South Africa's a rainbow nation, even under apartheid. And I miss that thing that there's a natural, you'd see 
Indian food and you'd want to taste it that wasn't foreign. Or someone yes. would be wearing a, 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 a Sarian wall. I find them quite sexy. It wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't separate. It was part of the landscape. Absolutely. And I think the, the more we can promote diversity and, and have this closeness to it, not just saying generally, oh yes, diversity is great, but not interact with it, mm. but really have this interactive element to it. Um, I think it would help all of us <laughs> immensely and also minimize um, tensions and misunderstandings and all these things that we do just because we don't know. Yes, I agree. Beautiful conversation. And I just wanted to ask if you have to wrap it up. One thing, I mean, we, we touched on so many points, but if there's one thing you would tell women who are looking to maybe make a change by being leaders in some way or another on their little, on their leadership journey, what would it be? I think if I gave one piece of advice because a few things have happened in the last weeks, I would say just make sure you're walking the talk of what you believe in. So it's not just the words you're saying. Make sure you are who you want other what society to be. Yes. Um, I think that's a beautiful message <laughs> with a Mandela quote about being the change you want to see. Exactly. I'll put it into context. We were trying to put something together with this woman to unify the woman, and two or three of the women turned around to me and said to me, I can't work with her, and I don't want to work with her. And I thought to myself, this is all about coming together. What does I can't, don't want to work with that person? It doesn't fit in this. Hmm. You don't have to like the people. You've just got to have to find a way. You must find a way beyond. We don't have to like each other. We've just got to be civil to each other. Find a way to work together. So that would be my thing. Make sure that you're walking the talk of what you're talking about, what you're what you're um, saying. Perfect. I think that's a great note to end, and I think every leader can take it on with them. There's always challenging situations on everybody's journey and challenging people, and we encounter that. But I think having the bigger vision and mission in in front of you, rather than not being petty about things, I think that's a very very important advice. So thank you so much, Magda, for taking the time and the conversation. And I will definitely be uh, linking to Kaleidoscope so people can go and have a listen to your amazing interviews that you've done yourself with other leading women. And, yeah, thanks so much. And I thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the episode description for more on today's guest and a link to everything that was mentioned. And now I'd love to hear from you. What can you take away from today's episode especially resonated with you? Head on over to leadingrebels.com and leave a comment on the blog. I look forward to continuing today's conversation with you there.